0: We are going to continue with our life of Moses, and you should find an outline in your bulletin. Uh, There are printed messages at both exits. They have a blue cover this morning, and all of the back messages are available um, going back 26 years now, and you can get those online in printed or audio format. And I want to read Exodus chapter 4 this morning. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out its hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. Neither recently, nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go. Go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you're to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, please, Let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, you're a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. And so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. I recently read David McCullough's massive biography of President Harry Truman Truman was a somewhat common man from the Midwest who rather unexpectedly got elected to the U.S. Senate, and then also unexpectedly for his fourth uh, run at the presidency, Franklin Roosevelt picked Harry Truman, who was somewhat unknown, to become his vice president. Less than three months after Roosevelt took office on that fourth term, uh, he died, and Truman found himself in the presidency. He had had no briefings from Roosevelt. In fact, he hardly knew the man. Uh, He didn't know what was going on. When he took office, the Japanese had not yet surrendered in World War II, and so Truman faced the history-changing decision of dropping the atomic bomb on Japan to end the war. And then after that, he faced the Korean conflict, and uh, that required many difficult, agonizing decisions. And as I read the book, I thought, you know, whether you agree with Truman's political views or not, I think you have to say he did an admirable job Uh, on this overwhelming role that was thrust upon him with almost no uh, background or preparation. And that's kind of what happened to Moses. As we've seen, by faith, Moses um, relinquished being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, as it says in Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. His first attempt, though, to assume leadership failed miserably. Um, He had to flee for his life out to this remote location in the desert of Midian. He settled down for 40 long years, tending sheep, getting married, fathering two sons. And then God appeared to him, as we saw in the burning bush, and called him to return to Egypt to deliver God's people from their slavery. And it was simply an overwhelming task. I mean, here is this 80 year old shepherd. He has lived in obscurity for the last 40 years, hardly having contact with any people. And now he's got to march in before the most powerful despot on the planet at the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And demand that he release about 2 million slaves. And those slaves, of course, were essential because their cheap labor was driving the backbone of the Egyptian economy. And there's not a ghost of a chance, humanly speaking, that he's going to say, Oh yeah, sure, you know, just let them go and we'll make do here in Egypt. Uh, That wasn't going to happen. And even though the Pharaoh and his men who had sought to kill Moses were now dead, it's just an impossible assignment that the Lord thrusts on Moses. And in addition to that, once he did lead them out, how do you care for two million men, women, and children in that barren desert? I mean, picture the the hottest part of the Sonoran Desert. And you're out there with no food, no water, and hostile enemies threatening you all the time. That was the job that the Lord gave Moses. Now, thankfully, the Lord doesn't call any of us to do a task that challenging for him. This was a unique time in history. But the fact is, the Lord does call all of us who know him to serve him. No exceptions. He saved you to serve him. And often he calls you to serve in a situation that frankly is beyond your human abilities. And so you're forced to depend on his strength. For example, he calls every single one of us to evangelize the lost and disciple the saved. And that's a hard task even if you've had training in doing those jobs, it is not easy. And so, Moses' story here in Exodus 4 gives us some lessons in how to serve God effectively. And there are four things here. To serve God effectively, first of all, depend on His presence and strength. Then secondly, be ready for difficulty. Thirdly, be obedient to His commands. And finally, work with Willing people. So, first, and I'm just following the text here as it's written this week, going through uh, each section, but verses 1 through 17 show us that to serve God effectively, depend on His presence and strength, not on your abilities. Now, why do we need to depend on God's presence and strength? Well, it's because God often calls you, as I said, to do that which is beyond your human ability and resources. Um, I think if you're able to serve the Lord in some capacity without leaning hard on Him, you may not be in the right ministry. Uh, The Lord pushes you into doing something where you've got to say, Help, Lord, I cannot do this myself. For example, even the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, for we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, here's why, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And then just two chapters after that, he wrote in chapter 3, verse 5 of Second Corinthians, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And even so, the Lord, I think, often has to teach us, especially when we flop, you know, remember, without me, you can do Nothing. We have to depend on the Lord and his strength. And so either God calls you to do something that is far beyond your natural abilities or like Paul and Moses, he shows you're inadequate. And so you've got to rely on his presence, his strength uh, with you to do what he's called you to do. A second thing we learn here in these first 17 verses is that the only foundation then for serving God is his abundant grace. Back in chapter 3 and verse 18, the Lord promised that the elders of Israel would pay heed to Moses when he went back and told them that the Lord had appeared to him and he was to help uh, bring them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. So in that regard, remembering chapter 3, verse 18, the Lord said, they'll listen to you, Moses. You read in chapter 4, verse 1, what if they won't believe me or listen to what I say? And then there will be more doubtful questions to come. But the thing that comes through as you read this chapter is the Lord's abundant grace in dealing with his very um, sometimes unbelieving servant and the Lord just graciously works with Moses I mean think about it how would you feel if you told your kids hey guys next month we're going to Disneyland and they all went yay and then every single day for the month they questioned you and said but what if you don't take us to Disneyland dad you know what if that doesn't happen they'd be challenging your promise your integrity uh You know, promise they would be challenging your word. And that's kind of what Moses is doing in chapter 4, verse 1 with the Lord. Now, in his defense, it had been about 400 years since anyone in Israel had heard a word from God. And so, perhaps because of that, uh, the Lord gives Moses three signs uh, to bolster his weak faith. First of all, in verse 2, the Lord asks what is that in your hand? Now, you have to remember, whenever the Lord asks a question, it's not because the Lord lacks information. <laughs> he always knows the answer. He asks the question to get the person to think about it. And I imagine that Moses looked at his staff and shrugged and said, it's a staff, you know, no big deal. Yeah, this is the thing I've had for the last 40 years, tending sheep. And uh, the Lord says in verse 3, throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake, and Moses flees from it. Uh, then, the Lord told Moses, grab it by the tail. Now, generally, if you're out hiking and you encounter a rattlesnake, you don't want to do that. Uh, grabbing it by the tail is not a wise move. But Moses obeys, and the snake becomes a staff again in his hand. Now, what did that sign mean? Well, you have to understand the cobra was a symbol of the Pharaoh. Um, if you've ever seen a picture of Pharaoh right there above his head, that's a cobra. And it was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. And by changing Moses' staff into a snake, probably a cobra, and then back again into a staff, I think the Lord was telling this lowly shepherd that as he depended on God's power, even the mighty Pharaoh would be subject to him and he would have dominion over it. And of course, the picture of the serpent also goes back to the garden, doesn't it? Where the snake deceived Adam and Eve and God promised there the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise him on the heel, a prediction that Satan would temporarily, seemingly gain a victory at the cross, but that Jesus would triumph over him. So, that's one meaning of this uh, first sign. I think also, the throwing the staff, staff was a common thing, every shepherd had one, throwing it on the ground, it becoming a a snake, and then... um, back again to a staff, showed that whatever we have that may be common and impotent becomes powerful when we yield it to the Lord and His hand. And you know, that's a foundational lesson, I think, that everyone serving the Lord has to learn. Jesus taught it to the disciples in the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. You may remember the story. Um, The Lord gave the disciples an impossible command in Mark 6.37. He said, you give them something to eat. 5,000 men plus women and children. The disciples had nothing. And uh, then Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Again, the Lord was not lacking information. And so they look around and they answer, you know, well, we got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, when the Lord says, how many loaves do you have? It's parallel to his question to Moses. What's that in your hand? The staff. How many loaves do you have? Five, two fish. And then Andrew asks the obvious question in John 6, 9. He says, but what are these for so many people? And the point is, The ordinary and the impotent, five little loaves and two fish, become powerful and sufficient and able to meet the need when we yield it in obedience to the Lord. Over 45 years ago, I read a sermon that I've never forgotten, and I go back to it often. And if you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. Uh, It's probably online now, but Watchman Nee has a sermon on the feeding of the 5,000, and it's called expecting the Lord's blessing. And he makes the point, he says, the meeting of need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. Let me say that again. The meeting of need is not dependent on the supply in hand, But on the blessing of the Lord, resting on the supply. And he makes the observation that the Lord's ability to meet the need of the hungry multitude does not depend on us or our 200 denarii. Remember the disciples calculating, well, not even 200 denarii would meet the need here, Lord. And of course, they didn't have 200 denarii, so (laughs) they were just futilely speculating and the Lord says, what do you have? And he takes that and feeds the the multitude through it as they yield it to the Lord. And that message, the truth of that message, has sustained me over four decades now in ministry. As often, I just think, there's no way. It's just impossible, Lord, unless you bless. Unless your blessing rests on My feeble attempts. So that's the first sign. Then the second sign. Consists of the Lord telling Moses. Stick your hand into your bosom. Into his robe there. And he takes it out. And it's leprous. Now this. uh, he, He then pulls it. Puts it back in. Pulls it out again. And this time it's restored. And this form of leprosy. Is not what today we know as leprosy. Called Hansen's disease. It was something where it became snow white. Uh, but, in the law, we find out that this was an incurable and dreaded condition, and if you had it, you were quarantined from the camp until it was cleared up. And I think that by this sign, the Lord was teaching Moses <clears throat> that he, God, could impose the most severe and uh, and then relieve again that severe judgment. Um, He had removed Moses from Pharaoh's court over the slaughter of the uh, Egyptian taskmaster and put him out in the desert for 40 years. Now, he was restoring him to a place of influence and power. Uh, And in the same way, Israel has been in bondage in Egypt for centuries. And now, through God, Moses uh, would relieve their suffering Now, if the elders, the Lord says, are still unwilling to believe Moses, he graciously gives him a third sign. He's to take water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground where it will turn to blood. Uh, The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. I mean, without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. Everything depended on that river. And uh, they had to have it to water their crops, to drink Uh, They navigated on it, everything, and as we'll see, the first plague in chapter 7 would be to turn the waters of the Nile into blood. Um, So performing this miracle in front of the elders of Egypt showed them that the mighty power of Egypt was no match for God. God would take care of Egypt. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is really interesting, but... uh, you know, God hasn't done any miracles for me. So how can I know that God is going to use me in some way beyond my ability when I haven't seen him do any miracles? Well, several things. First of all, uh, he gave us this inspired account in his word. And either it is true or it's not. I believe it is true. Uh, So we can know that God is the God who does these sorts of things. And then secondly, God has given us reliable testimony of the most important miracle in world history. Namely, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the tomb. In fact, that miracle is so well documented and so crucial foundational to the faith that Paul says if it's not true, you can just quit being a Christian. Everything, He rests on the resurrection of Jesus. And when people who are in bondage to sin and Satan believe that Jesus is the Lord who died for their sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures, the Bible promises they will be saved. They will be delivered from God's judgment. That is the message of the Gospel. And the only reason any of us can serve the Lord is that we have trusted in that good news of Jesus. If you have not done that, then this entire message is really not relevant to you. You can't serve God until God has saved you. And then you can proclaim the good news of His abundant grace because you have experienced it. So, we learn here in these first 17 verses, first of all, that often the Lord calls us to do something that we go, no way, that's way beyond my uh, pay grade, my ability. And then secondly, the only foundation for serving the Lord is you've tasted of His grace, not just at salvation, but like Moses here, when he doubts the Lord, he still receives God's grace. And then thirdly, we see that when God calls you to do something beyond your natural ability Don't make excuses for why you can't do it. Uh, I think at this point, down in verse 13, Moses moves from humility to unbelief. Up to this point, I think we can say, all right, Moses is being humble in recognizing his weakness. But now, even though God has given Moses abundant confirmation... That if he trusts in the Lord, even the mighty Pharaoh cannot stand before him. Moses says in verse 10, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now that's an odd comment because in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, Stephen says that Moses had been a man of power in words and deeds. So when he was in Pharaoh's court, he was a powerful guy. Uh, Maybe 40 years of tending sheep had kind of caused him to regress and to forget his ability to speak powerfully, maybe dimmed his confidence, I don't know. So the Lord reminds Moses, "Who, who made man's mouth? And who even makes man... Mute or deaf or seeing or blind. And then the Lord promises in verse 12, Now then, go and I, and then he underscores it, even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to say. Now, that's on top of God's earlier promise back in chapter 3 verse 12 where the Lord said, I certainly will be with you. So God promises his presence for Moses to go. And then, in verse 13, in spite of all this, Moses in effect begs off saying, Well, here I am, Lord, send someone else. (laughs) You know, I just, I'm not your guy. And at this point, the Lord burns with anger against Moses, and he agrees to let his brother Aaron uh, become the main spokesman. And so the messages are going to come from God to Moses to Aaron to the people or to Pharaoh when they go confront him. And then in verse 17, the Lord reminds Moses, you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. In other words, Moses, you're not off the hook. You're my man and it's not of you. This common staff will remind you, That I am with you and it's my power to change that staff into a snake and back again. It's not you, Moses. And so I will work through you. So the point is, when the Lord calls you to do something that you go, Whoa, I think this is beyond my ability. Then his presence and his power are sufficient. So don't make up excuses for why you can't serve him. The second lesson occurs in verses 18 through 23, and that is to serve God effectively, be ready for the difficulties of the mission. And there are three difficulties here. First, in verses 18 to 20, serving God often means cutting family ties and moving to a new location. Moses goes back from the burning bush, and he asks permission... ...from his father-in-law to return to his brethren in Egypt to see if they are still alive. Now it seems odd that Moses doesn't mention the burning bush to his father-in-law. He doesn't mention God's call to go back and deliver Israel from bondage to Egypt. Perhaps he was afraid that his father-in-law would think he lost it. You know, that he now was having delusions of grandeur or something... Uh, Like, Moses, you're an 80-year-old shepherd, and you're going to do what? Uh, Maybe that was his fear, so he kind of dodges the main issue and just says he wants to go greet the family. So Jethro kindly grants him permission, even though it meant for Jethro saying goodbye to his daughter and his grandsons. Jethro was both Moses' father-in-law and his employer, as the man who owned all the sheep Moses tended. And so I think it was right for Moses to treat him with respect. Um, I have seen some young people over the years who sense God's call to go into missions and their parents think, no way is that going to happen. And so the young people kind of, you know, quote Jesus first about hating father and mother more than uh, you do the, you know, for your love for the Lord compared to it. And they end up kind of being rude or insensitive. And I I don't think that's right. We need to be respectful to our parents. And there may come a time where we respectfully have to say, you know, I love you, I respect you, um, but this is the call of God in my life and I have to go. You can say that in a nice way rather than in a way that makes them look bad. God then informs Moses in uh, <clears throat> verse 19, that those who are seeking his life are dead, and so Moses puts his wife and his sons on a donkey. He's had two <clears throat> excuse me, two sons by now. And then notice verse 20. It says, "Moses also took the staff of God in his hand." Did you notice the change? Earlier in the chapter, it's Moses' staff, a shepherd's staff. Now, it becomes the staff of God that he takes in his hand. And in his commentary on Exodus, Philip Ryken points out that what that staff represented, namely God's saving power to deliver Israel from bondage to Pharaoh, is now available to us in the cross Of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the staff of God that we have. As we go. Knowing that the gospel. Is the power of God for salvation. To all who believe. A second lesson here is in verse 21. And that is that serving God usually means. Encountering difficulties and resistance. To what you're called to do. The Lord tells Moses to go back and perform all these wonders before Pharaoh, but then God warns him that he, God, is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let his people go. Now, I'm going to say more in a future message about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but suffice it to say here that in about half of the references in this story of the plagues, where it mentions Pharaoh's hard heart, about half of them... God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the other half, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And you say, well, which is it? It's both. It's both. God does it. Pharaoh does it. And Pharaoh is responsible for doing it. Um, There is a mystery here, and you see it throughout the Bible, that God decrees that Pharaoh would harden his heart. God decrees later that Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus, that Jesus would be crucified by evil and sinful men. And yet, all of those sinful men are responsible for what they did. Both are true. And you can't let go of one side or the other. But my point is, when you serve the Lord, you're going into battle with a strong enemy of the cross. And the battles are often difficult, and battles often result in casualty. And um, Moses is going to discover, we'll see in chapter 5, after he leaves, uh, well, even before he leaves Egypt, some of the opposition he's going to get isn't just from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it's from within the camp. And then once they're out in the wilderness... He's dealing with a rebellious bunch of people who are saying, hey, let's just mutiny and go back to Egypt. We had it better there. And so, all kinds of problems that he got into in serving the Lord. All I'm saying is this. Often we go into service for the Lord naively thinking, oh, wonderful, I get to do this. (laughs) Ha Be careful. There's going to be problems. And a lot of times, the problems come more from within than from without. And so, a third thing we learn here in verses 22 through 23 uh, is that serving God often requires delivering a message that people just don't want to hear. God tells Moses, all right, you're going to Pharaoh. Remember who Pharaoh is, the most powerful guy on the face of the planet. And here's what you're to say to him. Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then God warns, if Pharaoh refuses to let his son Israel go, God's going to kill Pharaoh's son. That's not a user-friendly message. (laughs) You know, that's just not the kind of, uh, hey, you know, wouldn't you love to hear this good news I have? God's going to kill your son. Um, Now, as a background to this, too, you have to realize... Pharaoh claimed to be a son of the gods. He claimed that he was divine. And Moses is saying, you're not the son of God. You know who God's son is? This bunch of slaves that you're abusing. They are God's son. And by the firstborn, it means they're God's heir. They're going to inherit everything that God has to give. And you don't. Not an easy message. You get to Hosea 11.1 and God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. It's a reference to this. And then as we saw back at Christmas when I preached in Matthew 2, Matthew 2.15 links that to Jesus' childhood sojourn in Egypt. They had to flee from Herod who was trying to kill Jesus to Egypt and Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 1, Out of Egypt, I called my son to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know, He came to this earth to offer His life on the cross for sinners. And that means that sinners don't get into heaven by personal merit or good deeds or patting themselves on the back for being a good person. The only way into heaven is by acknowledging I have sinned and Jesus, the sinless Son of God, bore my sin on the cross and so I give up all my good works and I trust in Him. And again, that's not a user-friendly message to proud people who want to say, I can do it, you know, I'm a good person and I can get into heaven and the Bible says, no, your good works are like filthy rags in God's sight you got to abandon all those and trust in the one the only one who did good and that is the lord jesus christ so first of all first lesson in service is depend on god's presence and strength not on your abilities and then second be ready for difficulties the third lesson is to serve god effectively be obedient to his commandments And here is a strange incident uh, in the Old Testament. Moses is heading back to Egypt, and the Lord meets him on the way and seeks to put him to death. Moses' wife, Zipporah, takes a flint knife, circumcises one of their sons, throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, and says, verse 25, You're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And then it says, The Lord Let Moses alone. Now what is all this about? Well, I admit, you have to read a few things between the lines here, but I'm going to give you my take on this, my scenario. I believe that Moses, in deference to Zipporah's objections, he had probably circumcised his first son and she went, that's gross, I don't want any part of it. So Moses capitulated on the second son. And, uh, Now, uh, God, I don't know whether the angel of the Lord stood over Moses with a sword and she saw it, or whether Moses got deathly ill or what, but Zipporah realizes, uh, you know, if I don't circumcise my son, the Lord's going to kill my husband and maybe my son. And so she grabs a knife, circumcises the boy, throws it, I think in anger, she's speaking when she says that to Moses and um, throws it at his feet. So I think the point of that story here is Moses, you've got to obey the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision of all male babies as God ordained in Genesis 17 with um, Abraham. And... uh, We don't know that maybe Moses at this point sent Zipporah and the boys back to her father uh, Jethro because when you get to chapter 18, Jethro brings the wife and boys with him to meet Moses in the wilderness. At some point he had sent her back and some think it was here. But the teaching is, if you're going to serve the Lord... Even if your loved ones object, you have to obey the Lord. You have to obey Him first and foremost. Now, it doesn't mean being rude and insensitive to them, but it does mean sometimes saying kindly, you know I love you, but I love Jesus more, and I've got to obey Him. Uh, but the point is this. You cannot serve the Lord if you're knowingly disobeying the Lord. If you've got secret, hidden sin... In your life, you've got to judge that and deal with it, or your service for the Lord will not be effective. And then the final lesson in verses 27 to 31 is to serve God effectively, work with people who are willing to follow in God's ways. Moses goes on to meet Aaron near Mount Sinai. I'm sure the two brothers caught up on 40 years of history, <clears throat> but especially Moses told Aaron what the Lord had said to him about delivering Israel from Egypt. He told him about the burning bush. And so they go back, and Moses, uh, or Aaron, speaks Moses' words, and then Moses performs the signs. And then we read in verse 31 So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low. And worshiped now that verse is fulfilling what the Lord had promised back in Exodus three eighteen. you go and they will listen to you this time now nothing has changed yet for Israel they're still slaves they're still in bondage in Egypt there's going to be a difficult road ahead as we'll see next time in chapter 5 uh, but now God works in their hearts they, they respond to Moses in a way that they hadn't 40 years earlier when he tried to deliver them. So they believe God's promise through Moses and they bow together in worship because of God and his concern for their difficult plight. But the lesson here, it seems to me, is just this God hasn't called us to serve him alone. Now, having said that, Moses is going to get into all kinds of problems trying to work with this unruly bunch of people. But you know, that's always been God's way, is corporate. Now the church. Christ said, I will build my church. And I find so many Christians, they get burned, they get hurt, trying to serve the Lord in the church. And they say, hey, I don't need that. You know, I'm out of here. And they drop out. Well, you do need that. You do need the church. Is it messy? Yeah. Can it be frustrating? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, Can it be difficult as people complain and gripe and want to go back to Egypt? Yeah, 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 all of the above. But it's the church that Christ is building, and as I think I shared last Sunday, one reason I'm a pastor was that verse where Jesus loved his church and gave himself for her, and I thought, well, then, if I love Jesus, guess what? i got to love his church and give myself for her. Problems and all. And uh, thankfully, they're not all difficult. In fact, most of them aren't. Most of them are faithful, loving people, and it's a joy to work together in the Lord. And I can say that after 40 years of doing this. Uh, in her book, The Tapestry, and if you haven't read it, you should, it's the story of Francis and Edith Schaefer's life in. Uh, how God used that couple. But Edith Schaefer tells of an early morning when her husband Fran, he wasn't her husband yet, he was still a teenager, and uh, he came downstairs at 5 a.m. to leave for college. He was a new Christian, and his unbelieving father had uh, had objected when Fran said, I think God is calling me, Dad, to be a pastor. And the father said to Fran, I don't want a son who's a minister, and I don't want you to go. And so his dad met him at the door that morning, very sternly and with objection to his going off to prepare to be a pastor. There was a moment of awkward silence, and Fran said, Pop, give me a few moments. I need to go down in the cellar and pray. And so he went down in the basement, and he began to pray. And again, he's just a teenager, and later he would not advise this, but he's desperate for guidance, so he said, Lord, I'm going to flip a coin. (laughs) And he flipped it, and it came up, go. Well, let's try twice. So he flipped it again, and it came up the second time, go. And so he thought, well, one more time, so he flipped it, and it said go. So he went up, and he said to his dad, Dad, I've got to go. And his dad looked at him hard, and he walked out to slam the door, but before the door hit the frame, his voice came through, and he said, I'll pay for half a year. And that was how he left to go to college. And many years later, Fran's dad did come to faith, and Fran thinks that process began that day when Fran said, Dad, I've got to follow the Lord. I've got to obey Him above all. Have you made the commitment to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord? That's foundational. If so, then you're, you're drafted. You're in His army. You've got to serve Him in some capacity. And it's not going to be easy. But as you depend on his presence and his strength, you're ready for difficulty and you obey him even when it's difficult and work with willing people. God will use you in however he has gifted you and his church will grow and be built up to the glory of our Savior. Let's bow. If you're here and you've never personally abandoned your good works as the basis to get into heaven, and instead come to the cross as a guilty sinner, you have to start with God there because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all means you. It meant me. It means every single one of us. The good news is God made provision for our sin in the death of His Son, Jesus. The Bible says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And that happens when you trust in Jesus for eternal life. And some of you may need to get involved in serving Him. Maybe you've been burned, had a bad experience, and you just need to come back and say, Lord, I need to obey you. How do you want me to serve you to build your church? Dear Father, I pray that you would use your inspired word to strengthen, motivate, uh, give strength for endurance to your servants. I pray also, if any don't know you, that you would break into their life with a hope that is found only in Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.